Privatisation is an experiment that has been conducted on the people of New South Wales. These words were echoed by the New South Wales Labor opposition leader Chris Minns at a speech on the weekend. It hasn't led to lower prices. Electricity prices are up 18% this year and 35% next year. It hasn't led to lower debt. We have the highest debt the state has ever seen. It hasn't led to lower taxes. New South Wales is the highest taxing state of any jurisdiction in the Commonwealth. We'll put an end to privatisation of our utilities. It's a clear choice between our parties. As highlighted by the PSA, the net gain from New South Wales Coalition Government's obsession with asset recycling is not evident. Vales Point Power Station was recently sold by Delta Electricity for $200 million. The problem being, the New South Wales Government originally sold it to Delta for $1 million in 2015. This proves New South Wales taxpayers are not getting a fair deal out of our government's decision making. On the podcast today, we talked to PSA General Secretary Stuart Little and Assistant General Secretary Troy Wright about the lack of benefits received from a decade of privatisation. Under the O'Farrell Coalition Government, we saw the privatisation of ageing, disability and home care services. This was one of the union's first big fights under your leadership. We knew it was five years in the making, but what effect do you feel it's had on the disability and aged care sector? Stuart, you go first. It's just been a, a, an appalling situation that's eventuated. You've had a real question mark over the standard of services, and I think that that was evident during the pandemic. We had any number of um, problems during the pandemic, and obviously you had a lot of uh, frontline workers who've now been privatised and it wasn't really clear the sort of protections that were being afforded to the people working in in disability, especially when you compare it to aged care. I mean, it seemed to be that the governments were focused on aged care and they forgot very, very vulnerable part of our community of people with disability. Obviously, what we've seen now five years down the track is that our members' salaries are really coming under attack and it's going to be everything that we can do as a union to safeguard their existing salaries. And of course, we're really, really concerned about making sure that they can keep up with the cost of living in the days ahead. So privatisation just means a whether it's lowering services to the community, it certainly is all about reducing salaries for people that work in those areas and obviously standards. And Troy, you've worked closely with our delegates and members in the disability sector. How do you feel the outcome has been? Before looking at the outcome, I'd look at the motives as well. And, you know, like we think of privatisation as the process of a government selling an asset and getting a short-term sugar hit out of that sale and arguably sometimes an asset that they no longer need to hold. You think of things like Commonwealth Bank or Qantas or things like that. This is the most cynical of privatisations, what happened with Attic, in that it wasn't an asset. It wasn't sold. The government didn't get any money out of it. And they didn't do it for any other purpose of getting, or for the purpose of getting money. They did it purely to get out of the sector. And in doing so, and the whole NDIS has done this, created an artificial market, that market being services to the most vulnerable people in the community. And You know, it wasn't necessary. The government could have remained in the NDIS and provided the same services and the better services that ADIC could provide, but instead they fobbed it out to the non-government sector just to avoid the responsibility. And we've got enormous industrial challenges in the area and we're addressing those because, you know, ultimately this is seeing wages or employers attempting to drive wages down. But 
the the other losers in this obviously are people with a disability. The stable public sector that used to provide for their care is no longer doing so, and the reasons for it that were given at the time were frankly BS and have been proven to be BS since. Yeah, can I just add on to that because I think Troy makes some really good points, but. When it comes to the NDIS, and I think it's it's a shame that federal labour in particular are sensitive about it, but the NDIS is a funding model, it's not a service delivery model. Exactly. And that's mm. the that's the thing that, that they, they fail to see. And then what's mm. happened is you've got all these shonks moving in. I mean, it's why that you've allowed elements elements of organised crime get in there and, and rip the system off. And it's because there's no in within New South Wales there are there is absolutely no involvement from the state and it's a real problem and it's a real problem going forward and I'm reminded of the sign that you used to see up at the uh, movie studios and you know that is all care no responsibility and that's what these, this decision was about certainly by the O'Farrell government let's just wash our hands of it yep we're out of it here's the assets now it's all over to you and I think it's it's an absolute tragedy and it's still continuing to unfold, particularly people with intellectual disability, because they cannot advocate. Those people that were in the old public system were generally wards of the state, and not always, but quite often, people with quite profound intellectual disability, often, unfortunately, some young people who simply their, their families weren't able to keep them. It became a job of government, and now, unfortunately, that's just been thrown out to the private sector. And one of our arguments at the time was what will happen to clients that the private sector can't handle. And we argued for a safety net, which we don't have for um, those vulnerable clients. And it's something that we have been fighting this whole time and continue to do so. And look, I, as you know, I another period of my life where I actually worked in, in a group home in the public system. Now, the clients there, the clients that we had were all young men. Unfortunately, most of them had a history of violence and uh, we had wards of the state. It frightens me as to what and how people are advocating on their behalves now. We've seen things like the um, the Guardian Trustee Office be cut. They had responsibility for a lot of these people. But when you've now got an NGO or some part of the private sector trying to advocate for people who've got no family and who have intellectual disability, I think it's a really sorry state of affairs. With the privatisation of Land Titles Office back in 2017, we obviously weren't happy about the decision, but it wasn't a popular decision by the Berejiklian and Perite supporters who actually rallied against this decision. What do you remember about the decision and what has been the outcome for New South Wales taxpayers? It worries me that, and I think the, the latest figures on the privatisation agenda of this current government is over $90 billion in public sector assets and one of those iconic assets was the land titles office it was flogged off in our view for virtually nothing the the new provider and unfortunately it was a superannuation firm that, that that was involved in that in our view they were used as a, a trojan horse to try to to make it look um, legitimate but what we've seen again is job losses um, salaries people being put onto individual contracts and the charges for members of the community have skyrocketed so the only person to win out of it is the private provider. Why didn't the government just simply keep it and put the prices up and put that money into public hands? And, and again, you're right, Stuart. Is that, what did they sell? They sold a transaction. 
they sold a mandatory transaction that everyone in New South Wales has to pay and gave a private sector company, a consortium, the capacity to make a profit out of that transaction. It, who does that benefit? Again, this wasn't a traditional sale of a, you know, buildings and things like that. It was a, a sale of it or a lease, a 35-year lease to uh, uh, function or operate a transaction on behalf of the New South Wales government. I mean, these are the bizarre areas we're getting into now. Um, most governments, state and federal, have exhausted the things they can physically sell. So they're now looking bizarrely at all sorts of things. And, and that means all sorts of things that our members in the PSA do in traditional public sector roles are at risk. Yeah, and that's a really good point that they're running out of things to sell because it worries me that particularly with large superannuation funds that are looking to buy blue chip um, assets um, and infrastructure and, you know, it worries me that that, that governments could be persuaded to try to somehow uh, legitimise that transaction And, and as we've seen with land titles, you do not get a good outcome for the community and for the people that own the asset all you get is um, this sugar hit, the one-off, which is then used for political gain, you know. As Troy said earlier, they look for a sugar hit, a big hit to the coffers, and they then just go out and throw that money into particular electorates, probably building artificial turf soccer pitches and, and, and stadiums and car parks in marginal seats. That's the reality of where this money ends up. Um, that's the unfortunate. It's not like they're putting it into frontline services. They're not. It's just being thrown into the pork barrel and, and quite frankly, being wasted. We, we certainly welcome the commitment from the New South Wales opposition. Obviously, we'd like to see perhaps legislation around that to make it really, really difficult. Since that decision, we've had other examples of asset recycling. The remaining public elements of West Connects, electricity assets that have not reduced power bills transportation services like the new metro and the light rail that could have generated ongoing profits to the state. Why does this government, the coalition government, insist we will be better off under privatisation? Well, tolls, if you use as one example, you know, my my daughter who works in Western Sydney now spends approximately $2,000 per annum on tolls, right? Now, she's a young person, probably earns 60-odd thousand as a fairly recent graduate social worker. She doesn't earn a lot of money, but even before she puts petrol in the car or anything like that, she's paying 2000 in tolls. It's appalling. These are roads, I mean, there's nothing magical about them. Uh, I can't understand why they, they feel that they need to place such huge increases in cost on tolls. And it's a really good point, particularly I've heard it from our members in Western Sydney, yeah, they have no option, you know, whether it's the M7, the M5, the M4, or even those new connections. They can spend a fortune on tolls, you know, probably more than what my daughter does. And as I said, 2000 a year, and that's just using one or two roads. But to get to work, she has to use them. And can I just add something there? The government keeps saying there's a cashback, but it's only up to $750. They're still out of pocket, $1,300. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you don't always qualify for the cashback. It's only on, I think it's on the M5 uh, in one particular direction. You don't get it in both, you know, as I understand it. I mean, it's only in certain circumstances. But and it's quite appalling. I mean, you saw this overseas as well. I think, you know, Sarkozy was the French president that would actually privatise roads in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, you could. it's a, it's a really dangerous path to go down. Absolutely. And you- 
Marianne, you asked at the start that why do governments do it, and I, it, it defies my understanding. There's an orthodoxy in political thinking at the moment that privatisation is a great thing. Now, just if someone's listening to this at home and look around your house and have a look at what your family own, you own a car, you, you know, probably got a mortgage, you've got furniture, you've got electronics and stuff like that. This is akin to you on a week-by-week basis not being able to budget your family household budget and decide, okay, I'll sell the TV because that'll balance the budget this month. And then I'll sell my lounge suite next month. And then I'll sell, um, you know, some other furniture or maybe I'll sell the car next year and that will balance. What are you left with? Nothing. And all you're doing, and this is what government's doing, is a short-term sugar hit that looks good on the books for that short period, but in the long term leaves you disadvantaged and in the government's case leaves the state disadvantaged. These are things that you owned and you sell and you never have again and you never get them back. And I don't know why that is seen as a clever economic move. Especially when we've seen things that have been sold off and I mentioned earlier Berejiklian sold off the um, Delta Electricity for a million dollars and that was in 2015 and they've just sold it for $200 million. So it, it makes no Great sense. Great for the taxpayers. <laughs> yeah. What about our prisons? We've got, I think, two or three prisons that yeah, are privatised. Is it three prisons? Yeah. We've got examples of that in New South Wales. Do they function better than the state-owned? The history of this goes back to the Griner government. In '95, when they 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 finally built, and it was the Labor government that inherited it, but the the private jail at Juni that was built, and the contract given to GEO to then run it for 20 years because that's part of the deal. If we're going to build it, then we need to run it and make lots of money. So they get a 20-year contract to run GEO prison uh, down in Juni. And now, obviously, what then occurred over you know the years after that, that not surprisingly. They would use that as a benchmark against other prisons. But again, you've got prisons in Australia that date back to the 1800s. I mean, Parramatta Jail was one of the oldest operational prisons in the world. You're trying to compare that with a jail built in 1995 and then they would bring in all sorts of strange measurements about, well, how do we, how many staff do you need? And you're saying, well, hang on, that one was built in the day of horse and cart, literally. And you're trying to compare it to a modern prison that has microwave technology and various um, electronic surveillance techniques. So you, one's an apple, one's a pear. But then what you've seen happen after that time is an existing jail, Parkley, and unfortunately that was a Labor government that privatised that. It hasn't worked. Um, you saw a similar issue with a remand jail in Auckland in New Zealand. You, you cannot operate successfully operate a private facility like that within a major metropolitan area like Sydney or Auckland, it doesn't work because people will simply come in, get the training and leave for a job either in the public sector or elsewhere. And of course now you've had, and this is where this whole argument about benchmarking goes out the window, now you've had the Clarence Jail built, you know, another benchmark supposedly. They, they Clarence closed. Is Clarence is up in Grafton. And it's a private prison. It's a massive private yeah. prison that was being built by Serco and I might let uh, Troy speak about Serco and their operations up there. Yeah, look, um, I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts, the enormous industrial battle we're having 
with Serco at Clarence Correctional Centre. It's the not just the state's, but it's the country's largest prison. It's in private hands. Very similar to what Stuart said. It's under a massive contract over a massive period of time. But just... Um, Again, let's go to the reasons, let's go to the arguments why you privatise something and let's look at that against the prison sector. So one of the arguments that the economic rationalists will make the privatisation is good is, is because there's competition. There's competition. There isn't any competition in the private prison market. There are two, three, maybe four massive, massive multinationals that have private, operate private prisons around the world. This isn't a mar and par business that they can put in a bid and suddenly start running it. This is this is massive, massive. But we massive shouldn't laugh because in the states they do Correct. auction off yeah, prisoners. We probably don't want that model either. No, we don't but, want that. Um, <laughs> these are huge, huge multinationals that, in some cases, seem to have more power than government. So that what's your competition? You get the same two or three bidders all the time, every time. The other reason that advocates for privatisation will argue it's a good outcome is that there's accountability. Well, exactly the point Stuart's making about June E is playing out again now with Clarence. Clarence is a 20-year contract valued, I've read in the media, valued at $2.8 billion over that term. There is no accountability that any state government can hold against a private operator with a contract that size. That size. You wouldn't sign any 20-year contract for anything in your personal life or in business. Why do we enter these 20-year contracts for privatisation? You know, we wouldn't enter here at the PSA a stationary contract for 20 years. Things change. And what if a provider's no good? How do you get them out? You can't. You cannot. And so this is the problem. There's no competition. There's no accountability. There's no good reasons for privatisation. And, you know, we're having the industrial blue, but I go back to 2018 when there was a massive inquiry into Park Lee, a parliamentary inquiry into Park Lee, and then Commissioner Severin was asked, why do you have private prisons at all? And his only answer wasn't competition, wasn't accountability. It was so that they have, and I quote, a market mix. So what this is, what private prisons are, isn't an exercise in improving outcomes in the correctional system. It's an exercise in industrial attack on our members in the public sector. It's We're going to have a couple of private prisons floating around in the 29, 30 prisons that we have in the state only, only to keep fear in your hearts that your prison could be next. That's the only reason they're doing it. And that is an enormous expenditure and risk for the New South Wales taxpayer, for the people that work in those centres, for the people that are detained in those centres, just to achieve an industrial outcome. And let's talk money, because the workers in the private prison get a lot less than the public sector workers. We've, we have been arguing with Serco for 21 months at Enterprise Bargaining about this. They started by paying $24.21 an hour, the federal modern award rate. That is less than someone you gets in Bunnings, and as we've said extensively in the media, I would rather be in Bunnings selling hammers than being in a, working in a jail at risk of being hit by one. The, the jobs are not equivalent. They have upped that to 2688. They are still the lowest paid prison in the country. They refuse to come anywhere close to the private sector average, which is around $30. And that, that $30, that average nationally for the private sector, is well below what the public sector receives as a starting wage of $34. So, you know, 
It's about, for us, it's about getting a fair wage for fair work and something equivalent, you know, equal pay for equal work in many ways. Um, we've seen that debate being had in federal politics at the moment. It's just this profit motive. Private sector companies aren't in prisons to make money out of prisoners. They are in prisons to make money out of prison officers, and they do that by shortchanging them on their wages. And look, in a, next week we're going to have the CPI released for the last quarter, and then they're going to start monthly giving us the figures. And we're predicting over 7%. Uh, at the moment, it's 6.1. So cost of living is a huge factor for us. So how are our members coping? People that work in privatised entities are pretty well under the Fair Work Act, which, you know, as, as Troy has just explained, they've spent virtually two years arguing with a big multinational to try and get their salary up from the minimum wage effectively. And they've resisted it, and they've resisted it effectively because of unfair, unjust work laws that were brought in by the Morrison government. Now, obviously, we're, we're waiting to see with the, the newly elected Albanese government what they will evolve those laws into. Obviously, you know, what's happened over the last 12 years is that wages have gone backwards. And can I say, you know, those people that work in privatised entities, they've gone backwards at a rate far, far worse than, than probably anywhere else because... They've absolutely been in those areas where places like disabilities and, and, and areas like that, where they just have not been able to keep up with um, the pace of inflation. Do we hold any fear over future plans for privatisation by the New South Wales Liberals and Nationals? Well, I think it's a given that we've already had attempts to to effectively privatise other public sector jails. We had this ridiculous scenario at John Moroney, uh, where they were trying to uh, turn the running of that jail into a Dutch auction. And and no doubt they will look to do it elsewhere, depending on the state of the economy, as, as Troy said. It's about making money out of prison officers' salaries. It worries me also that you'd have other areas, particularly regional hospitals. Obviously, that's not really our area of membership, but anything and anywhere that they can look at privatising, I, I think, quite frankly, is at risk. So you use the old analogy, if it's not tied down... Mm. Watch out. When they sold the Land Titles Act, I sort of thought, well, if they sell that, they'd sell anything. Land titles, as Troy said, it's a mandatory transaction. Whenever you buy and sell property, you make lots and lots of money, okay? And we've just handed that over to the private sector for a one-off hit to the budget, which then went into the pork barrel. Why would they not do that again and again and again? And it's so important that we get a commitment to stop privatisation, and I hope that that includes legislation that makes it really, really difficult, that requires you know a majority of the parliament or something like that, which they've bought in in South Australia. And I really hope that if there is a change of government, that they're you know, as good as their word and they bring in legislation, that really holds them to account. I think what we've talked about today should put all of our members on alert that, yeah, like Stuart said, it's not tied down, you're at risk. And, and more so, these new models of privatisation put everyone at risk. You know, look at the land holders office, look at Attic, look at the things they've let go over the last five to ten years. They were traditional public sector roles. They're not profit making generally. They're generally services. That's what's at risk now. They're not you don't have to work for somewhere that's making big money and an obvious private sector model for it to be privatised anymore. They are privatising services, they're privatising the most simple of transactions, they are leasing things. Everything's 
up for grabs under this coalition government. Protect yourself at work. Call the PSA today on 1800 772 679 or head to psa.asn.au.